This is the Portland Conversations, and the conversation continues with Mike Rogaway, who's the senior writer at The Oregonian, covering the business of technology. Mike Rogaway of The Oregonian. Recently, you are kind of heads down working on a story about the Oregon Employment Division? Correct? Yeah, the, the Employment Department has consumed a great deal of my time the past couple months. Uh, in Oregon, as in other parts of the country, the enormous volume of layoffs and furloughs that accompanied the coronavirus outbreak you know, it produced a, a huge spike in unemployment. And our unemployment rate in Oregon went from 3.5%, which was in March, which was just about the lowest point in state history, to 14.2%, which is the highest point on state re- on, on record in the state. And it'll keep going up. It's, it's paralleled what's happened nationally. Um, and with that came, you know, 450,000 or so unemployment claims. Like other states, Oregon struggled to process the volume of those. Uh, like many states, there are many, many, many unpaid claims. And the employment department really struggled to communicate with workers. Its phone lines were overwhelmed. That's its main method of communicating with workers. And so nobody could get through. And then, as, as we've reported, the state uses a computer system from the 1990s uh, built on technology, some of which dates back to the mid eighties. Is that a COBOL based system? Yep, it's a COBOL system. Okay. Uh, which mainframe system. It's been very durable. It does what they asked it to, uh, and is still doing what they asked it to from the 1990s, but they need it to do more now. Um, and it's been a mess because many claims need to be processed individually. Some simple claims just go right through. They sail through, you get your check. But many claims need a slight manual adjustment. When our unemployment rate was 3.5% and they were just getting, you know, a few thousand claims a a week, uh, the state could handle that. You know, those claims, the smaller percentage of claims that needed some individual attention, they could handle. But when the claims volume went up to 80,000 a week, the state was unable to handle it. And because of its, it relies on phones to communicate with people. And it only has so many claims processors. Uh, the backlog immediately became enormous. When you say, became, can yeah. I stop you there? When you say uh, the primary uh, interface is the phone, there's no online uh, component where you, you file online, okay. and then if it goes goes through smoothly, you know all your interaction is online after that. But if you need any kind of additional assistance, if they need clarification, their system routinely makes mistakes, then you need to communicate by phone. That's really the only mechanism they have for that. I see. And for reasons that still aren't clear to us, you know, they they stayed with, you know, the you call and get service. They didn't do make phone appointments or anything like that. 
They just said, keep calling, keep calling, keep calling. The situation was complicated because by the fact that Congress in March expanded benefits to self-employed workers and contractors who previously weren't eligible, but the state needed to set up a separate program for them. And until this week, it didn't have a phone number for those folks to call. So they could file their claims, but if there were any problems at all, there was no real way to address that. And so they've just now set up the phone line, and that left people waiting for two months uh, for their payments, you know, right through the heart of the pandemic. State had a real hard time getting a handle and still is having a real hard time getting a handle on the numbers of claims that it has received, how many it has paid, who it owes money to. Uh, it became a spiraling mess. Uh, there are many other elements to it, but Oregon politicians and our congressional delegation became increasingly agitated. Governor Kate Brown was saying nothing about the situation. You know, we're looking at it, you know, at least 200,000 unpaid claims, some of which were duplicates or were getting paid in other ways, but many of which were from these newly employed workers, uh, or newly eligible workers, the self-employed workers who weren't getting paid. So on Saturday morning, Senator Wyden said that the head of the department should be fired. Uh, Kate Brown did, in fact, or said, Senator Wyden said she should resign. Governor Kate Brown did, in fact, fire her later on Saturday and announced that on Sunday. So now they have an interim director who's a longtime uh, manager within the department and certainly knows it well, but is, was also responsible for managing it through many of the hardships they've had so far. But what I tell people is this is not a uniquely Oregon problem, but it was a distinctly Oregon problem because every state had trouble, almost every state had trouble with the unemployment claims. Some are having, like Florida, even more problem, trouble than Oregon, considerably more. But Oregon's problems with communicating, it's mixed messages, it's old computers, they all created a, a kind of distinctly Oregon storm here a that created storm. enormous problems, yes. Yes. And so it's definitely true that the former director, you know, was not out in front of this. She was, you know, we tried for several weeks to get her on the phone and we're never able to. We finally, she held a telephonic press conference the day before she was fired. It was the first time she'd spoken publicly in a month and a half in the midst of all this. So, uh, you know, no, it's certainly not all her fault. But yes, there were some distinctly Oregon problems with this. Yeah, you said the current unemployment rate is 14%, is that yep. correct? And that's the highest in the history the of the state? On, the highest right. on record. Um, now, okay. you know, we don't have comparable numbers for the Great Depression. Sure, sure. Uh, but, you know, I, Modern I think, numbers. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's, it's certainly the highest we've had. And we do have good economic data going back to 1939. And this, as our state economists said, when they issued their their quarterly economic forecast last week. This is the steepest downturn that we've had in the past, um, we have company. Uh, this is the steepest downturn we've had since 1939, mm -hmm. for sure. Is there a prediction that those numbers are even gonna rise higher? Now, you, Certainly. Now, the Certainly. difference here is that uh, before we had uh, workers fi filing for unemployment that have been laid off from you know employers, 
And you know, this includes, correct me if I'm wrong, gig workers, yeah, self-employed, yeah. Uh, yeah. people who are driving for, say, Uber and Lyft. So there's some complication around that, whether okay. the state qualifies them as gig workers or not. So I'm not going to say, but but let's okay. say, you know, a freelance podcast host, for example, uh, <laughs> if such a person, if your work dried up and you had no work mm-hmm. after that, um, then, uh, then yes, you would qualify for sure uh, under this. So, you know, artists, massage therapists, yoga teachers, uh, freelance writers, all kinds of people, sort of, small business owners, all kinds of people in that category whose income vanished uh, mm-hmm. during this. They, they qualified uh, for, for this. Now, they are not included where they're not newly included in the unemployment rate, which includes people looking for work. So... We're still comparing apples to apples um, in historical unemployment rate and current unemployment rate. We do have more people getting unemployment benefits, but the unemployment rate, we'll be comparing apples to apples. And that is sure to go north of 20% uh, next month. Wow. And then, and then we have some, you know, the, the state puts out a, a quarterly economic forecast to help sort of guide on, on state revenue. And what this Josh Lehner is, he's uh, one of the state economists and very sharp guy. He describes it as the reverse square root recovery. So if you look at the square root symbol, it, it kind of looks, you know, we have a, a steep drop and then a sharp rise to a certain degree and then a long tail as we sort of recover. Other people have described it as a Nike swoosh recovery where we go down and then we come back you know, slowly over a period of time. I think that's what people are looking for. You know, for instance, healthcare workers, many of those, many were laid off in March and April as clinics and hospitals stopped elective procedures. So they're out of work. But the in Oregon and in other states, the social distancing measures people took worked. You know, the, the huge volume of coronavirus cases that New York, uh, Italy, other uh, China had, we didn't have in Oregon. So those workers are coming back now as those procedures are resumed. Maybe not quite in the levels that they were at before, but they're coming back. So we're going to see a, a quick bounce off the bottom. McMenamins has brought back a lot of people. Palace has brought back a lot of people. Now, they're not operating the way they used to. But they haven't laid off their entire workforce anymore, which is what they did in the first days of the pandemic. So we're going to have a quick bounce back, but it's not taking us all the way back. Now we have this broader recession and we have other companies like Precision Cast Parts, for example, who are laying off workers, not because they don't feel they can work safely during the coronavirus outbreak, but because their customers don't need any of their parts. Um, Precision Cast Parts makes big metal industrial components for Boeing and other aerospace companies, also for energy companies and others. But we'll just say Boeing, for example. Nobody's buying airplanes right now, and nobody will be soon. And so, you know, as Boeing lays off people, that goes downstream. Boeing lays off people in the Seattle area at its at its jet plant factory in Gresham. Precision cast parts lays off people, and it sort of spreads throughout the economy, and that suppresses our recovery. We just recently had an uh, outbreak of the covid 19 at uh, Bob's Red Mill at, I believe, a fruit packing plant, was it? 
uh, yep, in uh, a food processing facility in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. That's that last we heard, I think that was about 120 people, workers, and a few family members or close contacts anyway mm-hmm. that had um, uh, spilled over, um, you know, from the workers to their family members. And then there there was a, a similar incident in Fairview at a food processing facility out there. In that case, at least there, there have been at least two outbreaks there. And in that case, at least the second um, part of that outbreak, most of those were workers who came to Oregon, seasonal workers who come every year, but they had already been infected when they got here. Oh, okay. Um, so n- nonetheless, it's alarming, but, uh, but these you know, are it wasn't in- spread organically through the community too. Right. Or within their workplace in Oregon. But these are industries where the workplace is a factory floor, uh, a packing floor, uh, Amazon, a warehouse. Um, Not everyone in the workforce can work remotely from home. Um, How how do you see those industries? Uh, Certainly there's measures, but how do you see a recovery in those industries where we have just recent examples, like you're citing right now, of uh, potential uh, virus outbreaks? Uh, How do those businesses recover? They're essential businesses. Right. Well, it's a good point. They're distinct from what everything else has happened. And for the most part, food processing facilities have not shut down, not in Oregon, not in Vancouver, Mm -hmm. not elsewhere. And it doesn't appear to me that that's happened elsewhere, that there have been widespread shutdowns. What we've had are sporadic shutdowns as there have been infections. People say, okay, we need to respond. We need to shut down. Uh, uh, and then they reopen after a few weeks, you know, with some of the same employees, some new ones, some who were infected and recovered. Uh, I know the facility, uh, the Firestone facility in Vancouver, the fruit processing facility, was hoping to reopen this week. I don't believe they have yet, but they may have. So those are those are coming back, and they haven't depressed employment overall. It's it's primarily been, you know, when we look at who has laid people off in Oregon, it's it's hospitality, it's restaurants, bars, hotels, other kind of tourism related businesses. And when we look at geographically where the layoffs have been, you can see it's it's Central Oregon tourism destinations along there, and the Oregon coast. Uh, you know, visitor visitor economies there. Is there any sort of sense of outlook on the travel industry and hospitality in Oregon, especially going into these summer months, which are which are huge for the state? It is sure to be a lot lower than it was last year because people come to Oregon from out of state and from other countries that travel will be very depressed. Now, you know, uh, Vacasa, we have one of the nation's big vacation rental companies is right here in Portland. Mm -hmm. Vacasa, they, they rent and manage vacation properties that other people own. Are these timeshares type? They're not timeshares. They're, they're like, you know, if you had a cabin on the coast. Okay. Um, you rent that out to other people. Uh, you got a place at Black Butte. You rent that out to other people. They'll list it for you. They'll manage it for you. They'll clean it. Da da da. So Vicasa had a big round of layoffs in March, right when this hit. They haven't said how big, but you know, for comparison, uh, Airbnb laid off twenty five percent of its staff worldwide. 
and just about wiped out its Portland office, by the way. But uh, so enormous, enormous volumes of layoffs. You know, I, I don't know what Picasso's number is, but it could be comparable to that. They say there has been a big spring back. I think they said, you know, May was six times better than April. Now, six times of a very low number is still a very low number. We don't know how low the April number was. So it remains to be seen how those things will look. You know, uh, Oregon's coastal counties and central Oregon, every county, but Multnomah is open. So people can go, but do they want to go? And I, I think what economists keep saying is that you can open the economy. That's fine. And, and Oregon's never closed nearly as much as other economies did. The question is, how do people behave? And, you know, it, that remains to be seen. Do people feel comfortable traveling? And it, I'll just take a step back and say, you know, in Oregon, you know, we didn't close down nearly as much as, for example, Washington did or California. Factories, construction were explicitly allowed to continue operating. Most retail stores were allowed to continue operating. But many, like Powell's, Powell's was allowed to continue operating. Provided they could maintain safe distance for their employees and their customers, they were allowed to continue operating. They chose not to because they felt they could not do it safely. And they have not reopened uh, for that same reason. And so I think that's kind of where we're at. We can say the economy is open. You can do what you want. But if people don't feel comfortable doing it, if business owners don't, if consumers don't, then um, the economy won't be back where it was. And then even once everything gets back, you have consumer confidence. Are people confident spending money? National data shows that personal incomes actually rose and personal savings rates skyrocketed early in the pandemic because people were getting unemployment insurance even if they were losing their jobs. There was a $600 federal bonus per week. A lot of people were making more unemployed than they were working. So we didn't have a problem with income. We had a problem with people being willing to spend or able to spend. And so we have to wait and see how confident consumers will be in Oregon and everywhere. If they're confident, then they'll travel. If they're confident, they'll shop. We're not there yet. You mentioned uh, Powell's voluntarily uh, shutting down. Are you hearing from business folks uh, that they're concerned with their their insurance policies, losing their insurance policies because maybe somebody didn't wash their hands or someone gets sick uh, and says, I got sick because I went to the bookstore or I went to this restaurant? So I'll say a couple things. Um, you know, the, I think the big issue around insurance so far has been that um, insurance, many insurance policies had exclusions for pandemics. Mm -hmm. So businesses thought, well, I have to close down. I bought business interruption insurance. Right. And my colleague, Michael Russell, has written a lot about this. Restaurants are like, well, I have this policy. And the insurer says, well, you do, but look here. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so they're they're not getting paid. Um, I think. So I, I think that they're not concerned about losing their insurance so much as they are concerned about not getting paid by their insurance, and that is affecting people's ability to reopen. Um, you know, because of lost capital. Then the the question of of insurance going forward is there's a big question around legal liability, mm -hmm. and if we're going to see an, an ocean of lawsuits. Uh, we've had at least one significant one in Oregon. An Amazon worker in Salem sued over 
she claimed whistleblower protections. Um, she said she was fired over objections to the steps Amazon was taking to keep its Salem facility safe. Uh, if people get sick or die on the job, there will be lawsuits. And in Congress, there's one of the holdups, perhaps the main holdup on the next stimulus bill, is to what degree businesses will be insulated from litigation for this. And that's that's held up in Congress right now. That's held up in Congress. Um, you know that uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, feels very strongly that those protections need to be in place. Uh, Democrats, worker advocates say, well, you know, you can't give businesses carte blanche to a carte blanche to abuse their workers. Uh, and I think it's possible one could imagine a certain middle ground there, but crafting that middle ground that protects businesses from spurious lawsuits or lawsuits where they're following appropriate protocols, but protects workers from being forced into unsafe conditions, you know, drive it, carving up that middle ground will be hard to accomplish. And it seems like what you're saying there is that's a, a federal level problem. Uh, States could provide some degree of, of protection, but I'm mm -hmm. not aware of efforts in Oregon along those lines right now. The Democrat-dominated state, it's not likely to be the top issue, but one could imagine it being part of the conversation. Are you seeing, like Airbnb, more uh, layoffs in tech in presumably places where you can have remote workers, you can have folks we, we doing have like seen, what we're doing, having a We Zoom have meeting? seen, the state numbers show very little downturn in technology work in Oregon. Okay. We had, we had layoffs immediately at Opal uh, in the Pearl District. We had layoffs this week at CrowdStreet. It's a real estate crowdfunding platform. They light off a fifth of their staff. We had layoffs at Puppet right at the beginning of the outbreak in downtown Portland Software Company. Those are the ones I'm aware of. Uh, Intel has not, you know, they're Oregon's largest corporate employer. Right. They have not had coronavirus-related layoffs. They have some layoffs all the time. But their business has been strong. They are Oregon's largest single economic engine. Uh, and they have continued with construction of their new multi-billion dollar factory in Hillsboro. That project has continued. Their fabs have continued running. Many of their employees are working remotely because many of their Oregon employees are administrative or researchers who can do their jobs on the computer. But some of them are researchers who need access to a lab. And many of them are factory technicians, fab techs need to be in the fab to do that work. There have been a handful of cases that I'm aware of, coronavirus cases, Intel's facilities and construction site, but I'm aware of only a, a handful. Uh, there, there may be more that I haven't heard, but whenever I've heard from workers that they've happened, uh, Intel has always acknowledged them. Uh, other facilities like Corvo and Lamb Research have generally, major tech employers have generally continued to operate uh, throughout this Lamb Research closed down for a couple days to change some procedures after we wrote about employee concerns there. But to my knowledge, uh, they are operating normally here now, which is different. Lamb shut down in the Bay Area. Lamb is, nobody knows them, but they are, they're a major Oregon employer. They do uh, semiconductor manufacturing equipment. They shut down their Bay Area facilities, uh, factories early in the pandemic, but kept running here in Oregon. Intel sales have been strong. Um, in part because there's long lead time in orders, in part because data centers are still roaring. That's the most profitable part of Intel's business. 
and PCs and laptops, laptops especially, the biggest part of Intel's business, people are buying those because we're all working from home. Right. Uh, and people want upgraded equipment for that. Now, there are forca- industry forecasts that that will drop off sharply in the second half of the year. I imagine that could be, and we might see you know, a shakeout in business at that time. But perhaps by that time, the underlying economy is stronger. We'll see. Intel had no significant operation, er, sorry, interruptions in China during the coronavirus outbreak. They hmm. do have significant operations there. The assembly and test, and they have a memory factory in the northern part of the country. They had no significant interruptions there. They do work you know, in clean rooms. Now, food processors, they say the same thing uh, because they're dealing with food. You know, You have to take precautions to make sure that you're keeping the food clean. It's obvious now that the precautions they're taking were not adequate to protect workers from the coronavirus. It was interesting, the CEO of, of Firestone in Vancouver, the food, fruit processing facility there, I'm accustomed to people, you know, the CEO hang up on me uh, if I call and ask a work, about a workplace safety. They don't want to talk about it. So when I called him about the outbreak, he said, every business needs to listen to this. We thought we were doing the right things. We thought we were safe. It came up and bit us in the behind. He said, we just, we, you know, we needed to learn more about this. And then he held a press conference the following week, a big mea culpa that said, we needed to do better. We didn't do enough to keep our workers safe. We're going to do better in the future. I think if there are leaders like that, probably there are things that can be done to keep workers safe. But the early lesson is that enough was not being done. And these are, I think the other issue with food processing and agriculture generally, these are the most vulnerable workers. People at Intel, at Nike, you know, they have, they're in a position to demand more from their employers. People who are on the margins, who need every paycheck, they can't say, well, I'm just not coming to work. I don't think it's safe. It's not really a realistic option for them. So they cannot insist on the changes that they see, they feel they need. And so that's probably a big part of what we have seen in the food processing industry. Is there any sense of outlook? First, we have the pandemic. Now we have uh, protesting. What are you hearing? So I think we can look you know, at the past. Portland, downtown Portland has always been a hub for protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, it always has been. And certainly, you know, go back 10, 12 years, Occupy Wall Street. You know, there have been times it has been a very bad time to be a retailer in downtown Portland. And I think in parts of downtown, it has continued to be, you know, there have been issues with homelessness and, and things that, that keep people away from shopping. And, you know, lack of business for big retailers may be the smallest part of the homeless problem, but it is a part of it. Uh, so that said, retail has always come back downtown up until now. I don't see the protests going on now doing long-term damage. I don't think they're hurting the retailers on Division or Hawthorne. North Mississippi, I don't think that will have any impact. It's the coronavirus that's the big question there. And retailers and strip malls and shopping centers, that's, that's the question. The first thing is, are people going to be comfortable shopping? I don't think we know the answer yet. For a big retailer like Powell's, we had a great interview two weeks ago with Emily Powell's. Extremely well-spoken, extremely thoughtful about her approach. She runs big stores. It's hard for her to reopen them halfway. She depends on tourists coming. Uh, to shop in her stores 
all retailers in the city court, city's court do to some degree. And certainly in other places like Bend or Astoria or Cannon Beach, they depend on tourism. So we rely on people being comfortable traveling, people being comfortable going into the store, and above all, people having com confidence in the economy. I don't think people have confidence in the economy right now. I think consumer sentiment is completely uncertain. Now, we'll see. We'll see that may, that may change, and it could change rapidly if the health situation improves, uh, if we see other indications of a bounce back. But we're, we're not there yet. So retailers remain very concerned, and um, the federal government provided this Paycheck Protection Program, provided them money to keep paying their employees, but it doesn't really, it's, it's loans to keep paying your employees. You get the loan forgiven, it becomes a grant, a government grant for your business if you can bring back your employees. But you can't afford to do that if you can't open your business. And so we haven't found a good way yet to help retailers, restaurants, get through this. If they can hang on for a couple more months, if things bounce back quickly, there's some cause for hope. I wouldn't say there's cause for optimism at this point. Um, one of the things I wondered in the first week of the, of the epidemic in Oregon was, is this going to permanently change our business landscape? The restaurants, the bars, the hotels, and the shops that we identify, are, are, those, are those in doubt? And I think for a brief period of time, it was. I think McMiniman's future was uncertain. Emily Powell says she just didn't know um, whether um, Powell's had a future. She does now know that. She's confident it has a future, that it will be able to make it through. Mike, where can people find you? Uh, OregonLive.com. We still print our paper seven days a week and deliver it four days a week. Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Rogaway. And um, uh, my email address is on every article. Thanks for joining us. Great to see you.